Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. Welcome to it. I'm John Fugelsang. Good Monday to you. This is May Day also known as International Workers' Day or Workers' Day, the day that commemorates the struggles and gains made by workers and the labor movement. Celebrated in many countries around the world on May 1st, mostly ignored on American media every May 1st. Again, I'll believe our media is liberal when they cover labor issues as much as they cover the shitty racist things Republican politicians said last night. We've got a, a, a terrific show tonight. We're going to be joined by a lot of great guests. Rhonda Hanson is going to be with us, uh, one of our favorite comedians. Uh, former governor of Wisconsin, Martin Schreiber, will be here as well. The governor is uh, not here to discuss his time as a public servant in the governor's mansion. He became the governor of Wisconsin in 1977. He's here rather to talk about a brand new book he's written. After he left the governor's mansion, uh, he began to notice his wife, who he had fallen in love with back in high school, began slipping and uh, making mistakes and becoming confused. It began a 20-plus year saga of becoming a caregiver as his wife experienced a brutal, brutal case of Alzheimer's disease. He has uh, written a memoir that is more than just his story. It's also about finding resources for families and telling other people everything he wishes he'd known when it first began. The book is called My Two Elaines, Learning, Coping, and Surviving as an Alzheimer's Caregiver. If you've ever been a caregiver for someone who's struggling with dementia or anyone who's dying or in hospice, I, I think you understand how lonely and intense and exhausting the experience can be. The governor's written a very beautiful and moving book, and uh, I, I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Also, I mentioned Ron is going to be here, and uh, we are joined by the great Thea Harper. We are in the studio tonight. Thea and I are back in the Howard Stern Tower, high above Gotham, where it's completely empty. And if we weren't here, well, our, our bosses probably wouldn't know. But what we're here and the security guards here and uh, and it's very lonely. Thank you, Thea, for being here with me. No problem. Isn't it great being back in yeah. the workplace? You know, it's great. Yeah, it's so cool, especially with this time slot. <laughs> you know, it's a uh, it's good that they, they want to have it be hybrid. So welcome to the the high part of the hybrid. It's nice to see you. <laughs> it's great seeing like you, I don't know how to tell these people there's no one here. There's no one here. Like Thea and I are here, and there's a security guard here sometimes. I'm going to take you over to Howard's office, and we're going to jump on the desks. Like, we can do it. No one's going to care. Sounds like a plan. Did you have a good weekend, Miss Harper? I did. How about you? Uh, pretty good. Got through it. I was down in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. uh, our nation's beautiful capital, doing a, a fundraiser show for uh, our friend Carl Frisch, who's a regular on the Stephanie Miller show. He's a Democratic strategist. And a few years ago, he asked me to come do a fundraiser because he was running for school board in Virginia. 
the Fairfax County School Board. And I'm like, sure, for you, anything. And I went down, did our show in D.C. on a Friday and then hopped over to do his fundraiser on a Saturday. Couldn't do this now. Uh, they don't really keep the studios open that late. So I couldn't do the show in D.C. anymore. But I went over to do Carl's thing. I tried to do it in one shot. Like I wanted to come back that night, but it was impossible. So I, I went down and uh, it was a really fun fundraiser. A couple of years ago, we did it in a high school auditorium. This year, it was in a movie theater. It was an AMC. I literally took an Uber to the hotel and then another Uber <laughs> into the state of Virginia to perform for the first time. I've never done an hour in an AMC multiplex before. It was pretty interesting. They had a couple of lights set up. They had a microphone. Great, great audience. Um, my feet were sticking to the floor from popcorn. That's never happened. And, uh, you know, I, I, I felt okay. I had always dreamed of opening for the Super Mario Brothers movie, and I felt like I was I was finally getting close to it. So it was good times. Um, and those people in the theater, I told them, you're the luckiest people in this entire multiplex because they were the only ones who didn't have to watch Nicole Kidman all by herself in an empty theater being weird in that weird commercial they show. She keeps telling us how much fun the movies are, but she can never get anyone to go with her. Anyways, it was a great crowd, very surreal. And I was up at five o'clock in the morning to take a train back to New York to take my horrible child to swim class. So that was uh, that was my exhausting weekend, but it was worth it for a great crowd. Got to do an hour. A lot of fun. <laughs> and, you know, I got a free flatbread pizza from doing it. So there we go. Uh, Chris Hauselt is our executive producer. He's running this thing from down in South Carolina. And here's the deal. I haven't booked any guests for the first two hours tonight. Rhonda will be here in Act 2 taking your calls with us. But no guests, no journalists, no celebrities, nobody at the bottom of the first hour. We got to talk about everything going on. There's just there's just too much news. There's too much happening between CNN seemingly trying to normalize Donald Trump in a way that I don't know how to acknowledge having a town hall with Donald Trump post January 6th. And all the news media is saying, oh, it's Donald Trump's first time appearing on CNN in four years. What's going to happen? What, what, what's going to happen is he's going to be asked softball questions. He's not going to be held to account for his lies. He's not going to be confronted with the brutal realities of his corruption. They're not going to talk about the E. Jean Carroll case in any depth. They're not going to talk about the documents case. They're certainly not going to talk about the terrorist attack. I, I'd be very surprised if they bring up any of the findings of the bipartisan January 6th commission. It's going to be Donald Trump there because Chris Licht wants ratings. CNN needs ratings. They fired Don Lemon, not because of his ideology, but because they need ratings. And instead of having more entertaining or compelling or interesting programming, they're going to do what these fuckers always do. Chase the Fox demographic. They're going to they're going to chase. This is how MSNBC started. They chased the right wing audience. And along the way, they don't get it. They fire more people. They fire more people. And eventually they'll have one or two shows that get better numbers and they'll try to copy those across the boards that, you know, some celebrity is going to have a new traveling and eating show and that's going to define everything. But in the meantime, they'll they'll try to normalize Donald Trump. And look, it, it, it's their right. They're an entertainment network. They have an obligation not to deliver the truth. They have no obligation to deliver facts or reality or even quality journalism, although many, many, many terrific journalists, many, many terrific professionals work at CNN. I've worked there. There's a lot of great people. But the channel's job is not to bring you truthful journalism. The channel's job is to have ratings, eyeballs, clicks. And that's why he's going to be there. I'm not going to watch. I'm just done with it. I'm not going to help CNN get better numbers by normalizing Donald Trump. It's shitty and it's dangerous. And it's beneath all of us. We've also got to talk about Donald Trump's legal team trying to have a, a mistrial at the E. Jean Carroll case because his lawyer didn't know who Jonathan Swift was. That's kind of hilarious. Uh, just horrible 
dust storm triggered a multi-car pileup in Illinois, killing six people. Horrible, horrible uh, tornado in my mom's hometown of Virginia Beach over the weekend. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, told Congress and the White House today that, yeah, the U.S. is going to run out of money as soon as June 1st. So how theatrical can Kevin McCarthy be pretending he's going to do whatever it takes to make life harder for poor people so that we don't have to default on our debts? Also, some Democrats are done working. Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland announced today he's not going to seek re-election in 2024. Just in time for our friend Jamie Raskin's cancer to be in remission. I'd love to see him run. Likewise, Washington Governor Jay Inslee announced that he is going to step back from politics after his current term. And the U.N. fears conflict in Sudan will lead to displacement and migration of 800,000 people in the region. So on top of all this, we're finding out Rupert Murdoch had a call with President Zelensky in March, just weeks before he fired Tucker Carlson. And yet we don't know anything that's going to mean. <laughs> and and more than half a million of the poorest Americans could be left without health insurance under the Republicans' new plan requiring poor people to work in exchange for Medicaid health coverage. You're too poor to be able to have health care, but we're going to force you to work anyway. <sighs> and of course, over in Montana, I mean, their governor, Greg Janforty. Big, big, big Trumper. He just signed a law banning any kind of gender affirming care for minors, even though he himself has a nine non-binary son. That whole state Republican Party in Montana. I know I don't expect much, but they're trying to take health care decisions away from patients and doctors. They have sidelined and silenced Democratic state representative Zoe Zephyr, who is transgender, for speaking out against the legislation. And these idiots think it's going to make them look good in the long term. And Ron DeSantis, I don't even know what's going on there. I need you guys to explain it to me. This guy, the boy who cried woke wound up getting stomped on by a mouse and now his stupid high profile campaign against what he calls wokeness which is really just not being a racist cock but he'll call it wokeness that's led him into this new quagmire with disney which is the largest private employer in his state which pays a billion and a half in taxes in his state and now (laughs) you know He's not, he's going to be afraid to touch it. And now he's suing Disney back after Disney is suing him. Even Kevin McCarthy is ripping this guy for negotiating peace with Disney. So so in the midst of all of this, I'm so glad you're with us. I hope you had a great weekend. We have a lot to talk about tonight. And I want to begin by talking about the obscenity that occurred this weekend with uh, with a gun. I know, right? Which one? I talk about the weekend's mass shootings, and then I've got to narrow it down more. Human beings are not designed, I don't think, to endure or process the sheer number of grisly, preventable horrors that we are faced with on a daily basis. Think about think about how many towns can you rattle off from memory where a mass shooting happened, right? I mean, Uvalde. <laughs> we could do this all day. El Paso. We could do it just in Texas. I mean, Columbine, Las Vegas. I, it, it's, it keeps happening. We have to memorize so many names. We have to memorize so many cities. This weekend in Illinois, cops said a guy shot his neighbor to death because he was using a leaf blower. In South Carolina, some guys in masks just fired into a bunch of teens having a party. Wounded nine. In Philly, they charged two teenagers with firearm offenses and the killings of three people. And then there's the gruesome, 
unholy slaughter of five souls in Texas after a neighbor was asked to quit shooting an AR-15 in his yard. Now, why, 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 why can't a guy just fire off an AR-15 for fun in his yard? That's the only reason to have an AR-15. You're not going to really use it for hunting. You're not going to really use it for self-defense. You're using it for entertainment because it's awesome. And mediocre men need to feel awesome. Now, at the time, uh, the neighbors asked the guy to stop shooting, and he said he was on his property. He could do what he wanted. Well, he didn't like being told to stop firing, and he shot five people to death in a home early Saturday morning, including a nine-year-old boy. Five people in Texas. And you're not going to hear too much about the gun in all the news coverage, because the Republicans have their playbook, and the media plays along. Whenever we have another preventable grisly mass shooting, because civilians have guns civilians don't need to have, the Republican Party will make sure we discuss the gun situation without mentioning the gun part of the gun situation. And the media plays ball. Let me let me break it down. What's been happening here? This this man is identified by ICE as Francisco Oropesa Perez Torres. He was first removed by an immigration judge from this country in March of 2009. They believe he's been deported uh, at least four times, according to Immigration and Customs Enforcement. He entered the U.S. illegally. So all we're going to hear is his immigration status. The victims included a nine-year-old child. Again, it started with this guy was asked to stop firing his gun because it was keeping the family next door awake. The baby was trying to sleep. But these mass shootings are never an accident. These mass shootings are always the logical outcome of laws made by men that are designed to enable mass shootings because the mass shootings lead to more gun sales. And that makes the NRA happy. And the NRA donates to politicians to enable more mass shootings. Now, the authorities are begging for the public's help in finding this guy or a pesa. He's 38 years old. Uh, This was in Cleveland, which is about 8000 people northeast of Houston, about 10 minutes before the massacre. Wilson Garcia and two other men walked over to his yard, just said, stop shooting so close to our home. The baby's sleeping. The suspect refused. Wilson Garcia said he would call the police. We walked inside and my wife was talking to the police and we called five times because he was being more threatening. So the gunman came to Garcia's home and shot and murdered his wife in the doorway, killed three other adults and killed his nine-year-old son. Here's Corrine Jean-Pierre earlier today in the White House press briefing room discussing the latest atrocity that was 100% preventable. On Friday evening, a nine-year-old child was murdered along with four others in yet another shocking, horrific act of gun violence in America, this time in Cleveland, Texas. Two of the women killed were discovered on top of surviving children and appeared to be shielding them from gunfire. In all, five people were murdered by an individual armed with a powerful AR-15-style rifle. As the manhunt for the suspected assailant continues, we urge the public to heed all guidance from law enforcement officials and stay safe. Federal law enforcement agencies have been providing assistance and support to local law enforcement as they work to respond to this tragedy and, and, lo- and locate the suspect. The president was briefed on the shooting on Saturday morning, and he and the first lady are praying for those killed in the attack, for their surviving loved ones, and for the broader Cleveland community. 
the, but the president believes prayers alone are not enough. Congress must act because what makes tragedies like this one all the more heart-wrenching is the fact that it is entirely within our power to take these weapons of war off our streets. The majority of Americans and the majority of gun owners support common sense measures to reduce gun violence. The president continues to believe that Congress must act without delay. It's not too late to save lives and prevent the next mass shooting. Greg Abbott is the governor of Texas. He said nothing about this mass shooting all day Saturday. Not from his official governor Twitter account, not his personal account. He posted a tweet with his dog and said all smiles for the weekend. He finally got around to mentioning it on Sunday. And that's where I want to land on this, because he followed the Republican playbook of finding a way to make sure that if we have to talk about this, we don't talk about the guns. We don't talk about how easy it is to get the guns. We don't talk about how easy it is for an undocumented immigrant to get the guns. We don't talk about the fact that if there were no guns, there'd be a lot less mass shootings. But no, 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 no. He tried to misdirect the whole thing by highlighting the victims, alleged immigration status. He went out of his way to say the Texas shooting victims murdered by someone who was easily able to get an AR-15 in Texas were illegal immigrants. What we call this is Texas is trying to out Tennessee, Florida. The governor, again, when he finally got around to it, tweeted, I've announced a $50,000 reward for info on the criminal who killed five illegal immigrants on Friday. Also directed Operation Lone Star to be on the lookout. I continue working with state and local blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Now, of course, no one killed five illegal immigrants because we already have proof that at least one of them was a legal permanent resident. But the governor didn't care about that. It sounded good. They looked brown. Five illegal immigrants. Is there any kind of law enforcement value in the governor of Texas letting people know that the five murdered souls were illegal immigrants? Is there any investigative value to that? Is that going to help find the killer? No. He's a heartless and despicable man. Uh, Maritza Wong is a volunteer in Texas for Mom's Demand, and she said the first statement out of Greg Abbott's mouth is to turn this tragedy into a dog whistle. Meanwhile, he refuses to make the most basic changes to gun laws that would make our families safer. You start to realize, when you think about this, why they did absolutely dick after the Uvalde shooting, right? He used a tragic mass shooting to push more xenophobic, more anti-immigration statements. With this act, he's really making it very clear. A story about violent crime should be a story about immigration. It's a racist association, and it's what they do, and the media plays along. Now, I kind of want to say, come on, people, go easy on Greg Abbott. What do you expect him to call the victims? People? Should he refer to men, women, and children? Murdered men, women, and children? Maybe he should say five murdered human souls. No. He's a Republican. If you can dehumanize people even in death, there's a Trump Christian who'll vote for you. On the average, a mass shooting has been recorded in Texas every 7.5 days this year. And yet, amidst all of this, they're still pushing to loosen gun laws. Texas lawmakers refuse to vote on a proposal to raise the purchase age for semi-automatic rifles. Now, let me get this out of the way right away. Um, If Texas didn't want undocumented workers, it would prevent Republican businesses and Republican customers from hiring them. If Greg Abbott 
wanted undocumented immigration to end in his state. He could do it by next week. He would start locking up the, wait for it, the white people who do all the hiring. I've said it before, and I'm sorry to repeat myself so much, brothers and sisters, but you know the truth. We have something at our border. We have a giant neon lighted sign, and it says, help wanted. And no Republican wants to take that sign down. They want to leave that sign up because our economy would collapse without a brutally oppressed underclass to take shit jobs for shit hours and shit labor. We need the most desperate people possible to work in meat processing plants, <laughs> to work doing backbreaking migrant farm work. You know, these guys hire nannies and they hire landscapers. And, and look, I'm not against that. I'm not against helping someone get a leg up. What I'm against is the demonization of undocumented people into being non-human. None of these Republicans care about illegal immigration. And when you talk to your loved ones or your coworkers or your friends on Facebook who go off on the illegals, 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 ask them, have they ever noticed that these Republicans refuse to lock up the people who do the hiring? It's supply and demand. I'm going to build a wall at the border. There's no wall you can build that's high enough to block out that gigantic neon sign. At least one of these people had a green card, but Greg heard they were south of the border. He assumed. Here's the other thing. Um, undocumented people, um, you could call them illegals if you're into a racist slur to dehumanize them. That's how it works. The less you view them as human, the easier it is to treat them as subhuman. But they have a right to not be killed. Illegals have a right to not be shot. This massacre is among more than 180 U.S. mass shootings in just the four months of the year. But they're trying to make a gun issue into an immigration issue so we don't talk about the fucking guns. Fear, fear, fear is what they sell. And the media helps. Conservatives always do this. They'll use identity politics if they have to, whatever it takes to divert attention from the universal fact. All of these mass shootings are fueled by the same thing. The easy access to guns. Remember Audrey Hale, 28-year-old, transgender, former student at that Christian school who was under care for an emotional disorder, had an AR-15, a 9mm Keltec, a 9mm Smith & Wesson M&P Shield EZ 2.0 handgun, and of course went into that school and killed six people. But they won't say, hey, hey, why, why was it so easy for this mentally unstable person to amass all this military hardware? No. They'll say, transgender person slaughtered Christians. They're doing it all over Twitter. Remember Stephen Paddock? He was a 64-year-old chap from Mesquite, Nevada, who checked into a hotel room in Las Vegas in 2017 and opened fire with his AR-15 down below on the crowd attending the Route 91 Harvest Music Country Festival, the largest slaughter of white people in our country's history. At the time, the media called it the largest mass slaughter because they don't think about wounded knee. But they turned that entire thing, that entire thing, not into a debate about AR-15s, but about bump stocks, right? Audrey Hale, they made it all about being trans. Vegas, they made it all about bump stocks. How about when Dylan Roof took a 45 Glock semi-automatic handgun into a Bible study class at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina? He sat with his victims through an hour-long lesson before announcing he was there to kill black people, and then he did. He massacred nine people, including Reverend Clementa Pinckney. And what happened after that shooting? The Republicans, led by Nikki Haley, said we have to take down the Confederate flag. 
that he was a racist, a white supremacist. Maybe we shouldn't have the Confederate flag hanging outside our capital. After all, the South lost the Civil War over 140 years ago. And so the entire narrative was shifted to the debate on the Confederate flag as Dylan Roof was taken to jail. Mental illness. Oh, that's their favorite. Remember Paul Ryan after the San Bernardino shooting in 2015? People with mental illness are getting guns and committing these mass shootings. But Republicans in the Senate backed mental health legislation while they were rejecting bills to require universal background checks and bar people on the terrorism watch list from buying guns. Greg Abbott did this last year after the Uvalde shooting when those children were slaughtered. And he said the school shooter had a mental health challenge. He said the state needs to do a better job with mental health. But in April of last year, he cut $211 million from the department that oversees mental health programs in Texas. Texas ranked last out of all 50 states and D.C. for overall access to mental health care, according to the 2021 State of Mental Health in America report. (laughs) And in 2021, he signed a bill that lets most Texans carry weapons without a permit. I mean, Uvalde, 14 children in elementary school shot to death. Updated to 19 children and two teachers eventually. Every detail we learned kept getting worse. He was 18 years old, this killer. He had murdered his grandmother before going to the school. He had bought the murder weapons along with 1,600 rounds of ammunition days before his birthday. And no one blinked an eye because that's normal. And after Uvalde, the media joined in the misdirect of making it all about... Can you believe those cops didn't do their job? Should the Uvalde school's police chief resign? Remember, that's all we talked about. Those fucking coward cops sitting in the hallway. We never talked about how easy it was for this 18-year-old child to get a mass-killing weapon. Liberals aren't the ones making distinctions between shooters based on identity politics. Liberals focus on the very too easy availability of the guns themselves. Democrats push gun control after these mass shootings. And Republicans accuse Democrats of trying to politicize a tragedy. You're trying to politicize this. No, we're actually trying to prevent the next one. The right wing treats these events as just a political event. They'll rake Democrats over the coals for politicizing it. They'll keep on saying more guns equals less crime, and they'll ignore facts that get in the way. Now they're trying to catch this psycho who massacred a whole family with an AR-15. And the media is going to talk about that. How did he get in this country? He was illegal. They're not going to talk about the fact that Greg Abbott has allowed these weapons to proliferate. And no one's going to talk about why is it so easy for an undocumented immigrant in this country to get his hands on a mass kill machine. No media will ever ask any Republican politicians from Texas that question. Why don't you want to do anything to make it harder for illegal aliens to own a mass kill machine? We have to keep the push for a bipartisan assault weapons ban to save lives again. Now, you know, you can always text fed up to 644-33 to call your U.S. House rep. But the media won't talk about that. The media will follow this narrative manhunt for an armed illegal. And that's going to be the story. Greg Abbott doesn't care about the victims. But if you're listening to this channel, you probably do. So I want to say their names because Greg Abbott will never learn them. Sonia Argentina Guzman, 25. She was a mom. Daniel Enrique Lasso Guzman, nine years old. Originally identified as eight. He was nine. Diana Velasquez Alvarado was 21. Jose Jonathan Cesares was 18. Abdulia Molina Rivera was 31. They are among the 248 victims killed in U.S. mass shootings in just the first four months of this year, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Say their names, because Governor Greg Abbott 
never will. We're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and everything else going on in our world. We're going to have open phones for the next 90 minutes on the show. So if you're someone who likes to listen, is shy about calling in, I'd love to hear your voice tonight. We'll be right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey, everybody. It's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. From high above Gotham, on the 267th floor of the Howard Stern Tower, starring me and Thea, and a big empty... Oh, someone just walked by. I just saw someone walk by. I don't know who it was, but I could see a silhouette. That's exciting. Maybe there's someone here. Or it's just a ghost. It's empty here at Sirius XM, and that's why we're filling our airwaves with you guys. And hey, hey, who's this now? Why, it's stand-up comedian, writer, director, and actor, one of our favorites, the gal who gets me through every Monday. Rhonda Handsome is open for Anita Baker and Diana Ross and Aretha Franklin. She does great solo shows. You should catch her on Politifod, available on SoundCloud. Monday means Tall, Dark, and Handsome Nights with Miss Rhonda Handsome. I'm black, y'all. Welcome. Thank you. How are you, damsel? I'm great. I, I am. I'm really great, uh, John. I'm I'm trying to keep up with uh, what seems like a crazy, crazy society we live in. You, uh, you do you know the um, the FBI sent out the wrong picture of uh, Francisco Oroposa? Really? Or a, yeah, the first picture they sent out of the guy who sh- I think he killed like five people in Texas or something. Yeah, uh, because because his shooting in his yard was keeping the baby away. Oh no, I began the show talking about this. It's 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 unspeakable and horrible. And yeah, you're right. They the FBI because they all look alike, right? So they posted a picture of a guy from Fort Worth whose name is spelled with a Z and not an S. Uh, you know, it's close enough. 
Oh, well, but uh, are they not paying these people enough? Uh, you know, who do they have in the research department? Is it all AI by now? Uh, <laughs> I mean, they did apologize. They said an incorrect image of Francisco Oropesa with a blue backdrop was mistakenly disseminated earlier today. That image has since been, since been removed from FBI social media accounts. Please do not use that photo. And that's that's it. So sorry, uh, guy with a similar name who looks similar. Uh, sorry if your door got <laughs> broken down earlier. Yeah. I, I you know, uh, I, for me, Rhonda, it's just I began the show talking about this. You know, every time there's a new mass shooting, the right wing will always try to change the subject so we don't talk about guns. And this is what makes me all crazy because, you know, uh, they'll they'll say, well, it's mental health. It's, we should talk about mental health or they'll say we talk about bump stocks or we should we need to talk about the Confederate flag. And, and this time. Time, they're going to make it all about the fact that the shooter was an, an, uh, an undocumented immigrant. They're going to say, oh, it, it's a, an illegal. We got a manhunt for an illegal. But no one's ever going to say, hey, why is it so easy for an illegal immigrant to get his hands on an AR-15 in Texas? That's the question no one will ask. Oh, and how about in some places vote? <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's not really a problem. We don't really I mean, we don't really have a problem with 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 people voting illegally in this country. No, not voting illegally. People who are in the country uh, who are not undocumented being able to vote. How how can you vote if you're undocumented? How can you register? To I'm vote? wondering myself, John. I'm wondering. But I hear know. this a lot from Republicans. The Donald Trump claimed that he won the popular vote in 2016 because three million illegal immigrants voted. And and I don't think illegal immigrants are trying that hard to get caught. Rhonda, are you are you sure about this one? I don't really know. I, how, I, how would you register to vote if you were undocumented? Well, first, you, you get a license to drive, I think, mm. to, to be your, your ID. I'm pushing back and, on this one. Well, OK, well, uh, there, there are some local elections that some uh, areas are looking to give uh, these people the, the right to vote. And yeah. um well, that's true. I mean, sure. Uh, but but in general, you know, I'm, I'm more worried about the fact that this is the convenient whipping boy, right? If Republicans wanted undocumented immigration to end, they'd start locking up the white people who do all the hiring. Uh, well, John, you're not going to get an argument from me on that because locking up white people who do the hiring of, of of people who are here illegally is something I can agree with you on. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, but that's it. If they really cared, if they really cared, they would stop the supply and demand business. Our economy would collapse. It would cost 50 bucks for a salad. But they're Trump voters. They don't need a lot of salads. So well, you, go ahead. But, John, you're talking about the possibility of our economy collapsing. You realize that in uh, three weeks, three banks have have gone down. Yeah. Yeah. The, these these banks are collapsing faster than a, a Florida seaside condo. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. It's it's really, really true. Uh, and I don't know why it's a failed bank season, but this one, the government just bought it and sold it really quick. I, uh, you know, I, I'm very worried, you know, when when you have, you know, tens of dimes in the bank, you really start to to worry about your your, your money. I mean, my 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 tens of dimes that I, I, I put in in there are are starting to to dwindle in, in, in work. <laughs> hey, Rhonda, I wanted to ask you, I was down in uh, D.C. this weekend, but I wasn't there for the White House Correspondents Dinner. I was doing a show over the river. Did you happen to catch any of Roy Wood? Junior's set. Roy, 
Wood Jr. was great. I tweeted to him. He hasn't gotten back to me. I really do want <laughs> to. Uh, I want to feature for him because I really enjoy his work. I saw I saw him in uh, Lincoln Center out of doors a couple of years ago, and he mm-hmm. had some people, you know, you know, trying to, you know, to work in, in that kind of um, arena. And I've done those big, you know, stadiums, big amphitheater kind of things. So um, but I'm, I'm waiting for Roy, you know, to to recognize the fact that he that I said he was really brilliant. He was on. He 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 skewered all both sides. Yep. He was yep. he was funny. And um, I, I I thought he 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 was uh, he was like ninety nine point eight percent, almost to a hundred percent on. And the, the thing that I'm noticing and I, I mentioned that, on, I think, uh, on on Twitter or to, to someone that there has been not really any blowback on on uh, any of his his jokes, you know, even talking about the, you know, the president being an uh, an 80 year old man begging for more work while people in France are all, are, are all upset <laughs> over retirement age going up two years. You know, I mean, that was one of the best. But I, I don't know who was writing for Biden, but they did a pretty good job for him, too. No, Biden, I, I, Biden killed last year as well. He, I mean, let me, let me play a couple of clips. I'd love to just uh, for our listeners who may have who, who may have missed this. Uh, let me just play really quick. Here's here's the line. I thought this was Roy Wood's line of the night. This is the one that got all the coverage in the media. Here's Roy Wood Jr. exploring the meaning of billionaire Harlan Crow's relationship with Supreme Court Justice, the very easily purchased Clarence Thomas. Billionaire named Harlan Crow. Flying Clarence Thomas all over the world on unreported trips, like an Instagram model, taking Clarence <laughs> to the Maldives and the beaches and all. Pay for his mama's house, this billionaire. Pay for Clarence Thomas' mama's house. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta give it up to billionaires. Billionaires, boy, y'all, y'all are relentless. Y'all, y'all always come up with something new to buy. <laughs> Just when you think of everything you could buy on Earth, a billionaire will come up with a new thing. Y'all you buy space rockets, you bought Twitter. This man bought a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> Do you understand how rich you have to be to buy a Supreme Court, a black one on top of that? <laughs> There's only two in stock. <laughs> and Harlan Crow owns half the inventory. We can all see Clarence Thomas, but he belongs to billionaire Harlan Crow. And that's what an NFT is. Right? Like, line of the night. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. I actually tweeted that, you know, there are only two in stock. Well, you, you mentioned you mentioned Joe Biden. Let me let me let me play a little bit of him too, because he did okay. I give credit to his writers, John. Oh. You know who Roy's or Roy's or or, or Joe's. <laughs> Here's Joe Biden. Uh, he did okay when his turn. He was debuting some brand new uh, Dominion. No, that's what I mean with Biden's writers, because they really got him some good stuff. They well, here he is. Here's here's Biden working out his uh, his Dominion material. A four. It's great the cable news networks are here tonight. MSNBC owned by NBC Universal. Fox News owned by Dominion Voting Systems. <laughs> oh, that's a great 
line. Oh man, he and he just delivers it like I'm just going to be my Joe Biden, 80 year old man. Here, here's Joe Biden. though. he did talk about the age, and this is the smartest thing I think. I want to talk about this with you, Miss Handsome. Smartest thing Biden can do is to not just joke about his age, but joke about the media's obsession with his age. I get that age is completely reasonable issue. It's in everybody's mind. And everyone, by everyone, I mean the New York Times. <laughs> Headline, Biden's advanced age is a big issue. Trump's, however, is not. <laughs> so that was the New York Times pitch spot. I apologize. <laughs> well, I mean, what do you think, Rhonda? The more I hear media making a big story out of Biden's age, the more I'm just like, fuck it, I'll vote for the 80-year-old guy. I'm so tired of it. I'm so tired of of the ageism. Like, they're all saying, hey, can, it, when Joe Biden finishes his term, he'll be 86. But, like, if Donald Trump gets elected when he finishes, he'd be 82. Which one of these guys do you think will be doing better four years from now? Well, you know, ageism is like uh, all the rage these days. Didn't uh, mm-hmm. uh, Nikki Haley come in with some ageism? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's, she more him. or less said you're voting for Kamala Harris because Biden's going to die in office. Joe Biden's mother lives to be 92, for God's sakes. Like 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 say when Don Lemon said that she was past her prime, I think saying someone's going to be dead is a, is a little bit worse than that. Yeah, I well, mean, Don Lemon got fired by CNN, but Nikki Haley will be fired by the Republican voting base. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I don't know. They, that's how hypocritical they are. They It's like they, they don't have any self-awareness because they don't need it. They just say whatever they want to say. Yeah. Well, let me, let me play. Actually, let me play an interesting one on the ageism then, because I'm 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 really mad about it. But here is uh, Bernie Sanders was on CNN over the weekend and they asked him and Bernie's older. They asked him, how much does Joe Biden's age matter as a presidential candidate? Listen to the senator's answer. Well, I think when you look at a candidate, you consider a lot. I think age is one thing. I think experience is another thing. I think your record that you have established is another thing. Uh, But to my mind, Donna, when you put it all together, what you have to look at is what does the candidate stand for? Which side are they on? Are they on the side of the billionaire class? Or are they on the side of working people? Look, it is no great secret I ran against Biden. No great secret that he and I have strong differences of opinion. But when we live in a nation where you have a major political party, the Republican Party, where many, not all, but many of their leadership doesn't even believe in democracy. They maintain the myth that Trump won the last election. They're trying to keep people from voting. They're trying to deny women the right to control their own bodies. So that's a whole issue out there. If you believe in democracy, you want to see more people vote, not fewer people vote. I think the choice is pretty clear. And that choice is Biden. I think he nailed it. I'm like, oh, Jesus, I forgot how good Bernie is at saying things. Well, I wish he would say reparations now for the uh, descendants of American chattel slavery. So do I. Sure. So do I. I want to hear. I think it's long overdue. And uh, we got to get this thing happening before white people decide that uh, they they are a descendant of slavery because their their people, their their forefathers own slaves. So they're coming. I'm going to. You know, I'm with you, Rhonda. But on the subject they were asking Senator Sanders about Joe Biden 
Biden's age, I think he brought it back to what is the ideology? Like, who cares about their age? Who wants to put women in jail for abortion? Who wants to do nothing about guns and climate change? Who wants to make billionaires richer and, and poor people poorer? Like, that's, to me, anytime they bring up the age, I, I just say, look, whoever he runs against, be it DeSantis or Trump, he's going to be running against 95-year-old Herbert Hooper economics. So ideologically, Biden's the young guy in this fight. Well, <laughs> I, I like that ideology, ideology wise. I well, I, I you know, I have some issues with his his um, his record. So uh, do I. So do yeah. I. But if my choice is Joe Biden or sticking my head in a vice and lighting my dick on fire, I'm going to go with Joe <laughs> Biden. Wait a minute. I want a video of that. John. I need that. Vi- <laughs> yeah. Well, quick break. We'll be right back. This is progress. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. And welcome back. Shall we go to the phones, damsel? We have a lot of listeners who want to call in and say hi. I want to go to the phones. All right. Uh, guys, if you're on hold, please stay there. I will get to you. Vivian in Buffalo, thank you so much for your patience on hold. Welcome. Hi. Hi. I, uh, sorry. I have laryngitis, but I'll do the best I can. Oh, my God. You sound great. I love your voice. <laughs> thank you. Oh, my God. It came off. I took drugs today. Yay. Um <laughs> It's hard to get. Yeah. Anyhow. Especially in Buffalo. Um, well, you know, the doctors don't want to, you know, I think the cow's already left the barn on the antibiotics and um, oh. what do you call that? Resistance, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't, I, I don't want you to make your voice more hoarse talking to us, but uh, what's on your mind tonight, Vivian? Oh. Well, you opened the show with something about um, Alzheimer's. Yes, in the next hour. In the next hour, we've got Rhonda, I want to tell you who you're opening for tonight, because in the next hour, we have an interview we recorded earlier this morning with former Wisconsin Governor Marty Schreiber, who has written uh, just an amazing, amazing book about his wife's struggle with Alzheimer's and the years he spent caring for her. It's called My Two Elaines, Learning, Coping, and Surviving as an Alzheimer's Caregiver. Uh, And it's just a a fantastic uh, read and a very good interview and it's such an important topic and so many people are affected by it uh not just the person suffering but their families are just exactly right and that's what it's all about millions of people right now there's like six million people struggling with alzheimer's or or other dementias that are not alzheimer's and there's up to 11 million people who are working unpaid as caregivers for these folks for their loved ones vivian have you been through that before oh have i ever tell me my grandmother my mother and my mother-in-law. Wow. All of them. Wow. And my oh husband. my goodness. No wonder you have laryngitis. Seriously. Did you were, uh, did you do the caretaking, Vivian? A lot of it. 
um, one summer, it was in the spring, I don't know, I was maybe about 10 or 11 years old, and my mother came up to me, and this was in the late 60s, and she said, how would you like to get out of going to vacation Bible school this summer? I said, yeah, anything. Hmm. And she sent me and my older sister to take care of my grandparents for the summer because she was at her with them. My grandmother couldn't think, and my grandfather had emphysema, so he couldn't move. What an experience for you as an 11-year-old. I went through that with my my grandparents around that age, and it's tough for a kid. That's horrible. Yeah. But actually, you know what the hardest thing was? Me and my sister getting along. (laughs) (laughs) That was the hardest thing? Arguing. arguing I I resonate to that, I got to tell you. But um, for my mother, then my uh, my brothers were my mother's primary caregiver. She was uh, petrified of going in a nursing home because the one my gri- everybody complains about nursing home nowadays. Yeah, and I think they're all absolutely wonderful because comparing to the one my grandmother was in, yeah. I mean, it smelled like uh, a billion. Diaper pails that have been emptied like I never. I mean, I've, but, I've um, my mother worked at a at a nursing home when I was a kid. My mother was the head nurse at a nursing home for for nuns. Um, she worked at a convent, the same order she had been a nun for. So I grew up. If I went to visit my mom at work, it was going to see a lot of nuns in wheelchairs in various stages of of death and dying, and uh, and none of it prepared me for when my mother went through hospice. But, you know, and my mother experiencing dementia, a very rare a rare degenerative disease she had, and there's nothing that prepares you for it. I, I hope you'll keep on listening, because the, the, the governor's book is not just about his story, but it's also all the things he wished he had known the first couple of years of, uh, of navigating it as a caretaker, and uh, it's very moving. I really wanted this guy on the show, because I just thought the story was so beautiful. Well, that's actually what I called to tell you. It's the things I learned with my husband. Yeah. He had early onset. I'm so he sorry. He died last year. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's okay. That's okay. We're all better off. Okay. I mean, he's better off for oh, sure. Oh, okay. Because uh, he went blind and, you know, he couldn't um, see and he, you know. But when he first had it, I mean, it probably took 20 years. I knew he had it, but yeah. he spent whatever brains he had left Oof. making excuses of, he, you know, he was petrified of having it. And, uh, you know, excuses all the time, like, well, I never knew, I was never good at directions anyhow. (laughs) Well, you're great at calling radio shows, Vivian. I thank you very much, and I I hope you'll enjoy the the next interview. It's it's really terrific. Thank you so much. I mean, Rhonda, I grew up around it. You know, my mother was a geriatric nurse, and people would come to our house for hospice, so it made me even more of a morbid uh, uh, goth artist. It is, it really is such a, a, a devastating disease and that we really need to start addressing uh, preventatives for people who are in their thirties and forties, because as she mentioned early onset can hit you and, and there you are. It's not just, we still don't know. We still don't know what causes it. You know, it, uh, and, and it's a it's a disease that affects poor people and wealthy people. It's not yes, like other diseases that are more class based uh, across, across the spectrum. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that part of the cause is from our environment, John, uh, yeah. in everything that we touch, consume, wear, uh, uh, sit on uh, has forever chemicals in it. I know. And I think these these uh, elements in every aspect of our lives are contributing to our, our degenerating mentally, physically, and, and I think even psychologically. <laughs> You're exactly right.
You're exactly right. You know what? I think I need Rhonda. I think I got a fever for some Stephen from Kentucky. Stephen. Oh, yes, yes. Hello, sir. Happy Monday. Hello, how are you this evening? Very good, sir. How are you? I'm doing all right. I wanted to uh, mention you were talking about chronology earlier. On May 1st, you did neglect a few, to mention a few things. Well, May I didn't. 1st, I've only, okay. 1931 was the Empire State Building's inception. May 1st of 1970 was the beginning of the Kent State Massacre. Mm. And then, of course, that occurred on May 4th, obviously. And a few birth dates that were not mentioned. Oh, my God. Were Marcel Prevost. Okay. John Berendino. Mm-hmm. Danielle Dario. Mm-hmm. Carrie Southern. Joanna Lumney and Judge Marilyn Miliani. All right, so just 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 so you know, Stephen, uh, I overprepare for this show because I'm a, a bit of a clown. <laughs> so um, I can I can do this all night because it's it's uh, you know I did mention Glenn Ford and Theo Van Gogh for God's sakes. But, oh, I know you did. But I just, Amtrak, I just Amtrak, to to Amtrak took over operation of U.S. passenger rail service on 1971 on this date. The polio vaccine was made available to the public on this date in 1956. The Catholic Worker began publishing in 1933, 90 years ago. I say that because it's one of the best newspapers in the world. Um, I. Did did have the Empire State Building, but you got to it first. The Union Army captured New Orleans in the Civil War on this date. Moses Fleetwood Walker became the first black man to play in a professional basketball game in the U.S. on this date in 1884. I can do this all night. Bob Dylan released <laughs> Wonder Boys on this date in 2000, which went on to win the Golden Globe and the Grammy. Dueling chronologies. Next I'm, on Versus. Guys, I come ready every night. I just don't get to half of this stuff. Well, I just wanted to mention, because uh, John Barandino, I remember, um, you know, they just celebrated General Hospital's 60th anniversary. And, ah. of course, he was an original cast member of that, you know, years ago. And he died, I think, in 96. And mm-hmm. that was one of the things that sort of inspired me to uh, mention that tonight. Right you, you know, Rhonda, I'm glad you brought up something, dear, a few moments ago. You had mentioned something about the border crisis or, or the whole thing with... Um, you know, illegal immigration. Uh, you and John were talking a few moments ago about that. You know, another thing that always interests me is, you know, whenever we're having a gubernatorial race down in Kentucky, and you see so many of these Republicans who are coming up with these ads, Kelly Craft and, um, oh, what's his name, Daniel Cameron. Yes. You know, they keep talking about how they like to secure the borders, you know. I called one of their offices the other day, and I said, well, with all due respect, where is your concern for the northern border as much as the southern border? <laughs> and I yes. reminded them, I reminded them that on 9-11, the terrorists who came into our nation at that time came in from Canada, not from Mexico. Correct. So Marjorie no. Taylor Greene can go ahead and, and sit on that. Right on. Weren't because some of I, them like CIA operatives or something? No, they were not. <laughs> Rhonda, where are you getting your news this week? No, they were not CIA operatives. No, you're, you're, thinking, you're thinking of the terrorists on January 6th. Those were all oh, CIA okay. and deep state Black Lives Matter uh, leftists. That's all. Well, it's just... It's, it's, it's interesting that they want to bring this up, but yet. Well, Stephen, I agree with you. You, you know, I, I keep hearing people talking about immigration reform, immigration reform. I, I want to know what is our policy before we start talking about reforming it? Why don't we make it clear what the policy is and then enforce it? Mm. Well, I think one of one of the things we need to drive home to people and I think people seem to forget about this today, unless they were Native American. Yep. And, of course, we all know how the African slaves were sent here 
through servitude, and also the European Americans came over here, immigrated to this country, and they faced their challenges too. But the fact is, unless people are Native American, they have no right to sit there and say, you should go back to where you came from. I love it. Love it. The The point is... People need to remember, go back to their roots. I'm glad you mentioned something else, Rhonda. Just a moment ago, you were mentioning about illness, too. That goes back to the roots of this problem, too. We have to, we have to, if we're going to talk about radicalism in this country, people need to understand what the root word of radicalism is. Radicalism is about developing profound depth of character. It's about transcendence. It's not about, you know, extremism or what have you. So many of these idiots today think it's about that. Yes. And that's their problem. You know, I wanted to mention. We got to hit a break soon. So, Stephen, go ahead. Judge Alito. Yes. Made or, or rather, I, I want to talk about DeSantis. For OK, a moment. OK. For a quick he wants moment. To talk about that law that advocates for the death penalty for child rapists. Yes. My question to the governor is, so you're wanting to now pass a law that essentially punishes these same people that just a few moments ago in the same breath you just said that the victims of rape, particularly at this age, had to be forced to carry the offspring of these rapists, but now you're turning around you want to advocate for the death penalty for these rapists. Right, but they'll live on. But the the people who, this is Ron DeSantis' Florida. Yes, you will rape a child, but then he will murder you, uh, even though Jesus was against the death penalty, not against abortion, but even though DeSantis will murder you for your crime, but then he'll punish your victim by forcing them to carry your child, so you'll live on. It's What's just bullshit logic is what it is. Well, I, I was just going to say logic is not necessary in these discussions, Stephen. It's just say what you want to say. Say what's <laughs> going what's red well, meat, what you think is going to make you sound more Trumpier than I want to execute people because I'm so pro-life. Yes. I understand, but what bothers me about this, and it should bother a lot of other people, is that if we're going to deal with crime, these are the same people who talk about being tough on crime, law right. and order. Then yeah, they're I'd not going like to deal with crime. to explain to me why it is we don't have rape reform in this country. They're not, why because they're not going to deal with crime. allowing a, a rapist to get off with a slap on the wrist, and the rape victim is exposed to all of this stuff in their personal life. I want to know what's going on in these rapists' personal lives why don't we start sitting there making their sexual history Stephen? i could seriously uh, do this all night with you i love it i completely agree um and we can start with of course uh the famous sexual assaulters that walk between the raindrops thank you for the call i want to try and get really quick uh to brian in oregon brian thanks for your patience on hold oh hi john hi um uh, big daddy is pretty good tonight um Hmm. Uh, that's, of course, Tennessee Williams' reference. Yo, oh, I didn't know if you meant me or, or yeah, the character no, from Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. Kentucky. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, uh, I'm quick. I'll, my main thing is I w- listened to your interview with the, uh, Repub- the public radio uh, woman. Michael Sakis, um, yes, from Colorado in, Public Radio. From Colorado in the Scorched podcast. Yes. But I, I, what popped into my head is how... Ironic it is, these old white men are flailing around, shaking their 100-year-old water treaty stuff, and these are the same, descended from the same white assholes that shit all over the Native American treaties. Yep, exactly. Any questions? It's just still going on, right? Yeah. It's yeah. the same thing. They're just. It's just. <laughs> well, I hope these these assholes get shit, shit on the way the Native Americans did. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. Well, I'm glad you liked the interview. It was, uh, she's, oh, it was good. She's great. Her podcast is called Parched, and it's all about how what's happening with the Colorado River affects all of us. Uh, and I thank you, Brian. I want to go to Dave in Washington before we get to the break. Dave, you're on with Rhonda. What's up? Hey, Rhonda. Hey, John. Hey, Dave. You know, you know the other day um, I saw a truck parked on the side of the road during a traffic jam, and on the driver's side window was a huge portrait of Donald Trump, right? Mm. And it got me thinking about those conservative mindset. And, you know, there was Nikki Haley, and, you know, she said that Joe Biden um, will die soon, and that we're actually voting for Kamala Harris, yeah, right? Yeah, she's classy. Like and then, yeah, and then RFK has joined the race. And, you know, and I, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about liberals versus conservatives. And I can't think of a single liberal. I mean, we have our differences, right? But I can't think of a single liberal that has any real anxiety over Kamala Harris becoming president of the United States in the unlikely event something happens. And you know why that is? You know why that is? Number one, because liberals aren't a freaking cult. Number two, because liberals vote, generally speaking, unless you have like an Obama rock star, but generally liberals vote based on policy. And that's why there's a difference. And that's why they're not going to care. Kamala Harris is going to fight for Roe v. Wade. Donald Trump is going to fight to put women in jail for having body autonomy. Kamala Harris will trust science on climate change. Donald Trump will reward polluters. Kamala Harris is going to try to have more common sense gun measures that the majority of Americans support. Donald Trump is going to, you know, allow more carnage and blame it on minorities. So it's like the choice is easy. It doesn't matter who the Democrat is. You know that they're going to fight for the accused over the accuser. Right. And you look at Donald Trump's VP. He's within the margin of error. He may have absolutely zero supporters. And yeah, he's know, gonna be, and, if it's Tim all, Scott, he will. The black Republican from South Carolina. Yeah. Well, and, I, and way back when Donald Trump first started running, um, I went to York, Pennsylvania. I don't know if you've ever been there, but there was a billboard. This is before Donald Trump even won the primary. There was a billboard of Donald Trump and no words on it whatsoever. He's just pointing his finger and they had a beard on him and he had this, this, this scowl on his face. And I'm like, you know what? These people want a fear. That's they it. They want a fear. That's authoritarianism. Then, they want a ruler. They don't want an elected representative. They want to be ruled by a strong man. It is the one trait that Trump supporters have in common. Well, and then right after Joe Biden got elected, again in York, Pennsylvania, a giant billboard of Joe Biden with a turban and an RPG. And, um, you know, he, uh, obviously they were comparing him to the Taliban. Now, if he's on the brink of death, how is he running around doing an insurgent battle against the United nice. States of America? All right. Dave, I got to run. We're hitting the break. Yeah. But I, I'm with you all the way. And I thank you for your passion. Quick break. We'll be right back. This is Sirius XM Progress. According to the Alzheimer's Association, more than 11 million Americans right now are caring for someone with Alzheimer's or other dementias. And it is predicted that this number will keep rising while the resources for caregivers and the families of patients remain kind of sparse. Now, our next guest has become a beacon of strength to many families facing this terrible disease in 1962. Martin Schreiber was elected as the youngest ever member of the Wisconsin State Senate. He was elected lieutenant governor in 1970 and in 1977 became the 39th governor of Wisconsin. But Mr. Schreiber's greatest claim to fame and perhaps greatest claim to public service has been his unexpected second career as an Alzheimer's caregiver for his wife, Elaine, and as a very public advocate for caregivers and patients. 
In his new book, My Two Elaines, Learning, Coping, and Surviving as an Alzheimer's Caregiver, Governor Schreiber shares his moving 18-year experience of watching his wife, Elaine, transform from a woman who had gracefully entertained in their executive residence to a person who no longer recognizes her husband and children. If you've been there, this is the book for you. It is a deeply hopeful work, but also a tremendously practical book designed to help caregivers and their loved ones live the best lives possible. It's a great pleasure to wel- welcome Governor Schreiber to Sirius XM. Hello, sir. Well, thank you. And uh, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to talk with you and, and maybe help people just a little bit along the way as they deal with one of, I believe, one of the most serious challenges any any person could face, and that is to be a caregiver or even to be a person who is, uh, is, is diagnosed with this disease and has to courageously move forward and understand what, what is ahead. Well, it's, it's really rare to find a book that's so universal and yet so personal. I, I'd like to begin, sir, by asking, how did you meet your wife? Where, where did you meet your wife? Well, this goes back. We were freshmen in high school together, Latin class, and uh, her last name, Thaney, my last name, Schreiber. We sat next to one another, and I'll tell you, I fell in love with her at that moment when I, when I saw her, and, um, and that was, that was my, that was my, my love. And, uh, and so we, uh, we dated and we went steady and we got engaged and we got married and four children and now 13 grandchildren, seven great grandchildren. And wow. Uh, but she was everything <laughs> that you could ever ask for in a life partner. And Courageous your first love. And, and intelligent. Oh my gosh. One, one of the biggest, most important attributes that she had, which, which I carry with me, when I would run for political office, she would be the hardest working campaigner. But if I would lose, she would never let me feel defeated. And that never letting me feel defeated sticks with me because I know how difficult it is for caregivers. And we caregivers have to make the determination that we are not going to let this disease defeat us. Uh, what we are going to do, though, is overcome a lot of these problems by making the determination we are going to help our loved one live their best life possible. It's clear how much you love your wife in the book and in your words. And I, I can only imagine how much growing up together and then holding elected office with her by your side made your relationship even deeper than than ever. Uh, I'm curious, sir, at what point did did your wife and you suspect that she might have Alzheimer's? I mean, what were her first symptoms, sir, or warning signs? Well, we go back almost 22 years. Uh, She lived with the disease for 20 years, but we go back maybe 22, and she was getting lost going to and from places she had been going to and from for the last 10 years. Uh, She was a great cook, and sometimes she would mess up her recipes so badly that she would cry. Sometimes, and a great driver, she would scratch the side of the car going in and out of of the garage and those those signs were beginning to pop up she sometimes would talk to me and tell me things and elaine that never happened i don't know where you get that from so so that was the beginning and then uh, we did get then a diagnosis uh of, of this disease from uh from the neurologist and uh and and so then we went forward but from the time of the diagnosis at those moments i had no idea 
what was in store for me as a caregiver. And because of that, I truly messed up, uh, messed up on helping Elaine live her best life possible. That's actually a really powerful part of the book. You you give caregivers some very practical advice in, in sections that are called What I Wish I'd Known, and you also have one called What I Wish I had done differently. What What is the sort of thing that is commonly not planned for when someone shifts from being a partner to then gradually becoming a partner and caregiver? Well, I contend that if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of the disease is worse. And there's ignorance of the disease by the medical profession, ignorance who doesn't understand that there's two patients, the person diagnosed with this disease and the caregiver, but ignorance of this disease by caregiver. And I'll tell you, I, I get so angry with, with myself in those beginning stages because no, Elena, it didn't happen on a Thursday. It happened on a Friday. And no, Elena, it wasn't the Smiths. It was the Joneses. Uh, no, Elaine, uh, why did you put the, the keys in the dishwasher? Why are you asking me these same questions? I just told you again five times what time we're leaving. And so... All of, I did not understand that her world was changing and she really didn't know that she was saying or doing those things. And so once I understood that for us to, to deal with this disease to the best we can is for me to join her world. Yes. And once I understood the importance of joining her world, that made all the difference in well, not all the difference, but just a significant difference in, in, in how I was able to help Elaine and help her feel more comfortable. How has it changed your daily life, sir, from the earliest days until now? Oh, well, you, uh, a caregiver uh, gets consumed. Uh, because this disease is progressive, uh, you work at it every day and you think just about now we've got it under control and lo and behold you wake up tomorrow and it's it's a new beginning it's it's, yeah. a, it's a different time and so then you work at trying to deal with the that issue at that moment in time and of course it's regressive so you're always you're you're dealing with someone who is absolutely losing uh, their their memory and uh, so I have seen, and, and that, one of the reasons I wrote the book is, you know, I, I, I want to help caregivers not make the same mistake I had. Uh, I know they're going to go on this journey with Alzheimer's, and I want to say, look, at before you go on this journey, sit down and just talk with me a little bit. Just, just listen to me so you can understand the importance of joining the world of your loved one. You begin to understand what about therapeutic fitting. Begin to understand how important redirection is and how maybe that can just, you know, take away some of the, the deep anxiety and worry that both the caregiver and, and the person living with this disease have. As you write in the book, if you if you try to go it alone, you're going to be less healthy and you're going to be less happy. And that is going to make you a less effective caregiver. It's rare to think of a job where self-care is every bit as important as caring for the person you're looking after. Well, thank you for for helping make that point. And uh, so we caregivers, particularly men, we don't like to ask for directions. We don't like to ask for help. And when I talk with caregivers, I, I, I want them to understand that to ask for help means you are not giving up. 
to mm-hmm. ask for help, you are showing courage in understanding that you, we caregivers, aren't really as as strong and tough as we think we are because this disease is so demanding uh, psychologically, physically, emotionally, and uh, and so if uh, if it's possible to understand that, uh, well, I I look at it as a lifeline, and if if I throw. Uh, if someone is, is drowning and I throw them a lifeline uh, and it breaks, what good does it do? And so mm-hmm. I tell uh, caregivers to understand that when they don't get enough sleep, it, decent exercise, enough enough relaxation, enough you know uh, opportunity just to get away a little. When they when they don't do those things, they are in essence gnawing at this lifeline and making it weaker. So then we want to help the person we love and we throw them this lifeline and they, and it breaks. Why did it break? Because we ourselves uh, messed up. Yeah. And so we've I mean, got to ask for help. We've got to take care of ourselves. Nearly 40% of the, of the 16 million Alzheimer's caregivers at this point are men. And that's up from 19% just a decade and a half ago. Um, so for so many couples, it seems that Alzheimer's is, for many of them, upending traditional spousal roles that they may have been getting used to for decades. And suddenly men who are raised to believe you have to bear burdens alone are all too often caught without the tools. They have all the love. They have all the strength. They have all the devotion to the cause. But very often men just don't know what to do when they're suddenly thrust into this position. You are correct. But many men are stubborn. And many and and I don't I don't want to mince words on this because uh, I've seen situations where not only um, you know did did they they would did they not want to ask for help or take care of themselves but where they just didn't understand and face up to what was going on and and so I want to be direct because unless you really understand it uh, life can be so much more miserable and unhappy. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, if we, if we can help caregivers understand that they shouldn't think of doing it alone, that they've got to understand this disease and join the world of this person who now is. In, in going through your book, sir, I, I kept thinking of something that I experienced when my mother came to require full-time nursing care for her degenerative condition. And I'd find myself always saying to RNs and to nurses' aides, Oh, I just wish you could have known her before. I wish I wish you could have mm-hmm. known her before she was your patient. And it seems as though caregivers always have to live in two worlds, respecting who they're caring for both before and after the onset of the disease. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you had to go through that with your mom. And and I can just really understand it's it 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 is so difficult. That's why I name name the book My Two Elaines. Yes, you know the first Elaine is wonderful woman I met when I was a freshman in in high school, and then this woman now uh, who um, living with 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 Alzheimer's and who passed away just almost a year ago to the mm. day. Uh, but I could not ask her to live for another moment because she just was simply incapable of dealing with any uh with 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 any of life's functions and in in her own world and so gosh you know but you know you and i think back and it 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 is so very difficult um 
it, it is just so very difficult for caregivers. And so we caregivers, uh, they, we, we have to understand we we are going to feel bad. In fact, we're even going to probably be grieving with unacknowledged grieving That's because right. we don't realize that our, our love, you know, we don't realize that we're actually grieving as our loved one is uh, is, is, is disappearing. Exactly. And uh, if we can understand that too and face up to it, um, that that makes a difference. We, if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of the disease is worse. Well, I think that's why your book is such a remarkable love story, because that's all it is. And it's a love story that that continues even after your wife's passing. And, and in your promotion and writing of the book, it, it seems that it was very important to you that your readers know both Elaine's. And one of the most moving and unique parts of the book is you include excerpts from your wife's journal where she documented her feelings as she was struggling with the diagnosis. Why was it important for you to include those? And, and what was that process like of picking your wife's own writings and, and weaving them into the narrative? Well, before we went to press with my, my Marty Schreiber's, you know, the book about, I found these series of notes and journals that Elaine had been keeping and some here, some there, some everywhere. And so I went through them and I want you to know that we had prayed together and we had cried together, but never did I understand until I read her notes and journals, the courage that it takes to be diagnosed with this disease. And never uh, did I understand how important my health was. Well, and, and so when I think of the courage, I think, Elaine, it didn't happen on Thursday. Or Friday. Why are you keeping it? And so she's going through this challenge, and she's not remembering things that are happening. And so that adds on to her, her dismay. Uh, so I, I wanted to uh, share with the reader uh, what kinds of emotions and feelings a, a person goes through with this diagnosis. And I was fortunate to be able to go through her notes and journals and be able to include at the front of every chapter uh, some of Elaine's feelings and uh, and, and, and emotions. And uh, she does uh, say good things about me, and uh, <laughs> she does tell me to take care of myself, but I don't put that in there for self-grandizement. I put no. it in there so caregivers can understand so clearly so clearly, we've got to understand, caregivers, that you've got to take care of yourself. Yes. And that's part of her ongoing love for you as well. That's what I took from this. You you were the person that she chose to care for her when she had to take this journey. And her love for you is, is, is very obvious. I'm curious, what did writing about your struggle and your wife's struggle do for you? Does talking about the reality as a public advocate help you to handle it as a private caregiver? Well, certainly very therapeutic. Um, you know, we've, we caregivers have to get our emotions out. We, we can't keep them bottled up. And so here, here I was able to, to start writing this book and to be able to think I might be able to help somebody else out, maybe even one person if I could help out, uh, because this, this disease put me through a whole bunch of, of, of health issues. Uh, I uh, had to discover on my own that uh, alcohol was uh, uh, caregiver's poison mm -hmm. and went through so many things that I wanted to really determine to help other people avoid. And so the writing of the book was was uh, has now become it's one thing to write the book, but to to visit with caregivers, to share the story has now become my mission uh, yes. because I know that's what Elaine would want me to do. Uh, but I also know that it can make a difference in people's lives. 
At this point, there's over 6 million Americans living with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. Uh, Over 11 million people are caring for them, unpaid. What kind of encouragement or hope do you have to share with those folks right now, many of whom are like you once were, men who have no idea what they're doing and just trying to do their best while being overwhelmed? Well, first of all, help is out there. Uh, you've got the Alzheimer's Association uh, in some uh, areas of, of, of the country, the Aging and Disability Resource Center or County Commissions on Aging. Uh, and there there are resources out there. But then also to, uh, and this is a repeat, but not to be afraid uh, to ask for help, but not to be afraid to learn about this disease. As I said, the therapeutic fibbing, for example, or, or the redirection and, and so forth, those are the kinds of things that uh, uh, we, we, we've, we've got to better uh, understand, and it's not all that difficult. And with that, then, life life can be made better. And if I can think I'm making someone's life better, uh, I know that would make Elaine happy, and I know it gives me comfort. And, and likewise, anyone who knows someone who's struggling with this and has a caregiver, I mean, my God, there's so many ways any of us can help friends or relatives who are in the process of, of giving care from running errands for them or just or just giving them a chance to, to get some time out to exercise or sleep or, or to have a, a social life. I tell you, this disease I call not a chicken casserole disease. Uh, so if I have open heart surgery, people know I made up, they'll bring me chicken casserole. If I bust my, my hip, I break my hip, they bring me chicken casserole. But because people don't understand Alzheimer's, they shy away. And so you can have friends and family who don't understand this disease, and, and so they stay away because they don't yeah. know what to do. And now the caregiver is not only dealing with trying to uh, do the best for their loved one, but now all of a sudden may even at times feel deserted, abandoned by friends right. because nobody shows up, nobody does anything. And so well, my, my tip to friends and relatives of, of caregivers is to please acknowledge to the caregiver that you understand sort of what they're going through, because believe me, they're going through a lot. And then please understand that we men particularly don't like to ask for help. So rather than saying, you know, call me if you need help, you know, and I know you mean it, but the point is I'll never call. But if you can say, hey, you know, I'll take the dog for a walk or I'll go pick up the medications or I'll take your your wife for a walk or, um, you know, so forth. Those are the special kinds of things that, oh, yes, would you do that for me, please? Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, uh, and, and I, I guess there's another factor here um, that, that, that I want, want to bring in uh, w- w- as far as the friends are concerned and so on. So Elaine and I, when, when she was in assisted living early, uh, we're having lunch and she began to cry. And I said, Elaine, why are you crying? Well, she says, I'm beginning to love you more than my husband. Well, I didn't ask her what's wrong with her turkey husband. I I didn't do that. But here's what that meant to me. It meant that it was not necessary for her to know my name in order for our hearts to touch. And because it wasn't necessary for her to know my name in order for our hearts to touch, I then realized that I could tell people, look, don't think you have to stay away because they may not know your name. The poet once said, you know, I may not remember what you said, but I will always remember how you made me feel. Mm -hmm. So the holding of hands or the singing of a song or the going for a walk or giving a hug or or just being together, a smile uh, can make such a big difference 
in giving comfort uh, to the person uh, who is living with this disease. So understand, um, just because they may not know your name, that doesn't mean your hearts can't touch. And when you do find your heart touching, uh, that's really a pretty nice kind of feeling. Martin Shriver is the former governor of Wisconsin. His beautiful new book is called My Two Elaines, Learning, Coping, and Surviving as an Alzheimer's Caregiver. It's a great book for anyone who's ever been on any side of this. Governor, thank you so much for joining us today. And my compliments, you and your wife were truly lucky people to have found each other. And the love that you bear for each other is there to enrich the rest of us. Thank you for writing this book. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. 